Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. I hope you can hear the birds chirping in the background, and maybe even the very loud, bubbling brook. It rained here in Colorado pretty much all last night, I think, which was wonderful and peaceful. Um, Heading off in the van today. Figured uh, Civil War was the appropriate time to take a vacation. I don't know about you guys, but that's what I'm thinking. We uh, might end up back in Colorado sooner than we think, depending on what happens. Because shit's pretty crazy right now. Today, I am bringing you a conversation with my brother, um, which I'm really excited about. I listened back to it today and was just feeling really appreciative to have such a cool brother, honestly. And, um, and honestly appreciative that we're different. I, you'll see in our conversation, we sort of speak about, you know, different ways that I think in many ways, we're very similar in many ways. We have the same values in many ways. We want to sort of see the same change in the world, but I think for various reasons, the schools we went to, the countries we've lived in, our sort of relative age and relationship to one another, you know, and just because people have separate lives, um, we, we come about them from different ways. And, uh, we've always had a, we've always, we've always had a really good relationship, I think, in the sense that we challenge each other, um, because I think our brains work in these sort of different, but yet complementary ways. But before I get into my conversation with Mika, who, as you may have heard, um, his music is what plays in the background of my intro and also my previous intro that I did and the intro that I have for my other podcast with Aaron, Horror Rapport, which if you haven't listened, I highly recommend. Um, Last week we did an episode about romance. The week before, uh, for our 10th episode, we did a little like refresher on what it means when we say whore. Um, and just yesterday we recorded an entire episode on jealousy, which was definitely, I think one of my favorites and one of our most requested topics. So, uh, you can find whore rapport, R-A-P-P-O-R-T, um, wherever you listen to podcasts. Anyway, uh, Mika's music has been featured on this show many, many times. (laughs) And, uh, so today you'll actually hear his non-singing voice and his opinions. Um, 
But before I get into the conversation, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on right now in the context of astrology. I don't really talk about astrology very much because I have a very problematic relationship with astro- with astrology. Mostly I have a problematic relationship with what and how astrology exists in the public realm. And so I feel sort of perpetually, honestly perpetually embarrassed and a bit ashamed to identify as someone that thinks at least some aspects of astrology are really cool. Because, I mean, one, I don't want to be folded in under this, you know, pop culture, download an app and have a computer generate some stupid um, horoscope for you kind of astrology. Um, But also I think that a lot of astrology can do a lot of harm in many ways. I would say similar to, let's say, psychedelics. If you don't don't approach that type of therapy with intelligence and intention, uh, it can go in the wrong direction pretty easily. It can be abused. And I think the same can be said for astrology. And so I certainly don't want to be someone whose words are taken and used in a negative way. And I also want to be mindful and really call out the fact that the bulk of astrology that you see in your regular daily life is bullshit. Um, And that isn't to say like I'm some sort of expert or anything like that. It's just that the way that information is both calculated and I think distributed is really just not smart to begin with, not nuanced, and... um, like I said, potentially harmful, I think, to people and their own self-awareness and self-development. Having said all of that, I struggle because, on the other hand, I think there are parts of astrology, at least in my mind, in my life, specifically as it relates to mythology and the collective unconscious and depth psychology and archetypal patterns that I think could be really useful and informative and insightful. They have been for me. And so I want to share those things. And I think that's why I'm very careful and particular about how and when I talk about astrology or who I invite on the podcast to talk about astrology, because astrology is everywhere right now. And some of it's fine. Some of it's not fine. (laughs) But the type of astrology or the way that I look at astrology, I don't think is portrayed uh, that much in the public realm. And certainly, um, if I'm going to bring any of that stuff to you guys and to my audience and to this podcast, I really want it to align with the benefits of what I see this practice to be. So today I'm going to fall into the second category and not be embarrassed and ashamed to just talk about something because maybe it could be useful to some of you. Um, so we're going to talk about Pluto. So the way that planets work is that they exist on an orbit. And when something exists on an orbit in a circle, it returns to each of the places in that orbit over and over again. The time period in which it takes for that planet 
to orbit anything depends on what the planet is. So for Pluto, it has an elliptical orbit, so the calculation, um, dip, it, it's a bit uh, all over the place, but let's say about 250 years. For uh, the sun, as we know, that takes a year. Our birthday is technically just the time when the sun returns to the same place in the sky as it did when you were born. Um, so all the planets have these different orbits. Uh, Saturn is about a 27-year cycle. Um, Jupiter is about a one-year cycle. Uh, so they all return to, again, all the different places in the orbit, um, depending on how big their orbit is. And um, how, I use, how I like to see planetary returns is, so let's pick a point at which the you know, wherever the planet was. So let's say Pluto, as we're going to talk about, uh, is in the late degrees of Capricorn. Whenever the planet of Pluto returns to that place, dependent on whatever we're measuring with the chart, in this case, we're going to be talking about the chart of America. So when America was founded during the American Revolution, whenever a planet returns to a point in that chart, now this can be a thing like the founding of America. It can be a person when a person was born. It can be the time at which you bought property, right? So every point in time has a specific chart associated with it. And each of the planets exist somewhere in the sky at that very moment. But every time a planet returns to the same spot as it was when you, when the chart itself was generated, I like to look at it as a ripple. So it's a thematic ripple on a similar theme. And that theme is going to depend on what the planet is, what the sign is, and what the house is, which I'm not going to get into all of those things today. But basically, the theme that we're talking about, the energy that we're talking about, the archetypes that we're talking about are going to be dependent on those three things. And so every time a planet returns to that spot, I like to look at it as just an evolution on something whatever that something is. Now, it's important to understand that, at least in my mind, the way that I view these things, it's really vital that we not think that planets are like doing things or affecting things or making us do something. We're not puppets. To me, these are reflections. To me, these are mirrors. To me, this is about intuition and synchronicity, right? It's very sort of Carl Jung, collective unconscious type of shit. So we don't even need the planets, right? If we're quiet enough and we're intuitive enough and we're aware enough, we probably know all of this anyway. Meditating or doing psychedelics or delving into astrology is just a tool to help us become more aware of what we really already know. So if you get an astrology reading, if you're an intuitive, awake person, that astrologer really shouldn't be predicting much of anything. You should feel as if, wow, I, I had a sense. I had a sense of what I thought was coming, at least in an energetic way. And this reading confirmed that for me. It made me think that my intuition and the trust that I have in myself is more reliable than I thought. 
that's really the only thing astrology should do. And, and that is, again, the same that can be said for psychedelics. You know, if you take mushrooms and have an experience where you think, oh my God, wow, yeah, the whole world is not really what I thought it was. And I feel like I have permission now to do what feels right to me, to do what feels authentic, to take the individuated path. That's not giving you new information so much as it's, as it's confirming what you already know or what you already should know, but which has just been so bogged down by societal and cultural expectation. So I just wanted to mention that because this isn't like something's happening in the sky and therefore this is what's happening on earth. No, these are just, let's just think of everything as connective tissue Everything can be a reflection or a mirror of something else if you pay close enough attention. So I've been talking about maybe what I would call the end of the world or the apocalypse or something of that sort, probably since about 2017. And the reason for that is one, because I felt it, because I anticipated it because certain books that I read or certain ideas that I had or visions that I had when I was very quiet and still, not to mention just (laughs) observing the state of the world at the moment, which is clearly crumbling, um, the messages that I kept receiving had a lot to do with some sort of imminent collapse I have no idea and had no idea and still have no idea what that would look like, but the energetics of it, the archetypes of it, that definitely seemed pretty clear to me. And that's really all the planets are. They're collections of energies and archetypes. They're, they really shouldn't be more definitive than that. And if they are, they're only going to be definitive after the thing itself happens. Like, oh, okay, this event occurred in my life. Now let me look at this chart and, oh, right, okay, I see how these different energies work together and express themselves in that way. But there's really no way to predict that because each planet and each sign and each house has a myriad of different archetypes. And the reason for that is because those archetypes are often based on mythological stories. And if you read a mythological story you recognize how many different parts of that story there are. It's not just a story about one thing. It's a story about many things within a particular theme. Not to mention, the story itself can be interpreted in 900 million different ways, which leads to lots of other possibilities. Anyway, the energetics of the collapse of structure and the sort of dissolving of order these themes have been very present in my conscious mind now for a few years. And I've been telling people about this. My mom just yesterday said, I haven't forgotten about your prediction about civil war. (laughs) I don't actually think I predicted civil war, but something of that sort. Anyway, part of what helped me to get in touch with these imminent expressions of these particular energies and archetypes was my knowledge about astrology and specifically my knowledge about the chart of the United States of America. 
So we are about to have, I believe it's in 2023, um, uh, Pluto hits this point a, a couple of different times over the next four years, but I believe it's like up until 2024 or so. But we're about to have what's called our Pluto return, and by our, I mean America. So if you're in another country, you have a different chart <laughs> for your country. Um, but America's having its Pluto return. And Pluto is the slowest moving planet, obviously. It's the farthest away from us. It takes the longest to orbit. So in our own personal lifetimes, in our own personal charts, the planet of Pluto never makes it all the way around. None of us ever have a Pluto return because no one's ever going to live to be 250 years old. Pluto will definitely move um, as far as a transit goes, right? So we have the chart that we have when we were born. Pluto is in this place. And then as we grow up, Pluto moves in the sky. But it'll never return to the same place within one lifetime. But we do get to see how this works when we consider things that aren't people, like countries. So Pluto is the slowest moving planet, and archetypally, Pluto has to do with a lot of different things. It's associated with the sign of Scorpio. It's the ruler of Scorpio in modern astrology. And it has to do with the biggest, the deepest types of transitions, and because it moves so slowly, a lot of the times when we have a Pluto transit in our own life, we might look back and be like, oh my God, that period of time in my life was so profoundly transformational. It broke down so much and recreated so much. But at the time, that might not be something we're aware of because it's a, a process that moves slowly. There are other planets that can create sudden, immense change. Um, but Pluto's change, while the deepest and the most profound, is a lot more subtle because of how slowly that planet moves. So one major transformation may be made up of many different types of transformations. The sign that America has Pluto in is the sign of Capricorn, and Capricorn has a lot to do with structure, institution, very easily be associated with governments, with walls, with order. You know, when uh, Jordan Peterson talks about chaos and order, order is Capricorn. Order is, order is patriarchy. <laughs> order is the masculine. It's rules and regulations. It's everything that holds everything together. This can be good and bad, right? We need structure, but sometimes that structure can be oppressive. As we know, this country was founded on mass genocide, slavery, oppression, colonization. Those were all sort of structural components of something, right? So the, f the founding of this nation was created around these many structures and these many systems. Now, if Pluto has to do with the deepest, most intense transformation and it exists within the sign of structures and systems if it existed in one point when america was founded what might happen when it returns to that same place for the very first time that's what we're going through and i don't know what that's going to look like and if anyone tells you what that's going to look like they're wrong the most reliable 
insight as to what's going to happen is just to look outside our windows, to feel into what's going on right now. But to me, you know, and this is, it also speaks to this like one big transformation uh, occurring around many smaller ones, right? So when the pandemic hit, in my mind, I don't think necessarily the pandemic in and of itself is going to be the thing. I don't even think these riots in the streets around George Floyd is going to be the thing. I don't think our crazy ass president is going to be the thing. It's clear to me that things are building. Things are being tacked on to one another. I think there are going to be a lot of these different types of things that occur over the next few years. And I wouldn't be surprised if that leads somehow to pretty immense structural reorganization, the same type of structural reorganization that occurred when we signed the Constitution. You know, we went from this land being inhabited very peacefully by Native Americans to a colonized empire based around slavery and killing and oppression. What's the next ripple of that? I really don't know. I have some hope as to what it could be. I really hope that the ripple is going in a positive direction, but it might not. But I do think that in the next four years, again, sure, based on these energies and archetypes and charts that I'm talking about, but also just based on fucking common sense around what's going on, I would not be surprised if in four years this country, and probably as a result a lot of the world, looks a lot different. And I wanted to talk about that today because, first of all, I think it feeds in a bit to my conversation with my brother that you're about to hear But I think also just because I wanted to talk about perspective and to talk about state of mind. You know, talk shit about astrology or any of the rest of these therapies or not. But for me, I think meaning is important, even if that meaning can't necessarily be defined. I feel a lot of peace in my life that I never felt prior to three years ago around just sort of understanding that one, there are much greater and bigger things happening in the world than my own little life, but also that this is the life that I was meant to lead. It exists in this time. There's nothing wrong here. There were no mistakes made, no missteps. For whatever reason, my life is supposed to exist within this time and within this place. And this place is supposed to be going through these types of transformations or whatever needs to be happening during my life. And that doesn't mean that I am going to sit here and say it all happens for a reason and take some sort of spiritually bypassed bullshit perspective around love and light and everything's great because that's not what I mean. What I mean by meaning, what I mean by there are no mistakes, is just that there's a sense of peace there, 
even if there is turmoil and pain and suffering and anger and grief within that piece, within that greater meaning and knowing. I mean, meaning is not just positive. <laughs> meaning is whatever you make meaning to be. It, it's, it's cohesive in its emotion and feeling and energy. I've found the most meaning in my life through pain, through things that are hard to face, as uh, Mark Epstein on uh, the last episode so eloquently described. This isn't life is suffering. Life is made up of things that are hard to face. And if we look at those things, like let's say Viktor Frankl did in his brilliant book, which everyone should read, Man's Search for Meaning, there's all sorts of different things to learn from. You know, it doesn't mean, again, everything happens for a reason. It doesn't mean we have to take some whitewashed rainbow view of things. Quite the opposite. But whatever you need to do, whatever your thing is, whether it's astrology, whether it's meditation, whether it's expressing yourself creatively through writing or poetry or creating some sort of film project, whether it's just hugging people you love, or eating great food, or having great sex, or going out for a hike, like whatever your thing is, you can always find a way to feel super present in the moment of whatever is going on right now. I know this podcast talks a lot about, <laughs> talks a lot about, it's called it has saving the world in the fucking title. This conversation with my brother mentions this a lot. I'm not really so much interested in saving the world. Honestly, I think if there is a period of time in which I'm living, it's one in which maybe we're setting the stage for that, but I'm not really tied to being here for the outcome. I mean, these transitions, like where we came from, from the American Revolution until now and beyond, these things are broad and complex and take so much time. I'm not really interested in fixing so much as I am maybe helping to fix something or being one little grain of sand with a much larger beach of whatever changing or saving the world looks like. I'm totally okay if my life is going to be one in which things collapse around me and I don't get to achieve what I wanted to in the world because there's no internet or, you know, publishing house or printing press for me to write or record podcasts. Like if that's what if that's what this is supposed to be, this being my life, I'm okay with that. I know that I can find meaning in whatever happens. And that's what I do. And that's what I really encourage everyone to do. Because honestly, life's just a lot more fun that way. It's a lot more enjoyable. When we realize we don't have that much control, all we have control over is our own perception, our own meaning. 
life is just so much richer. Even if it looks on the outside like it's simpler or stripped away. It's so much better. So I don't really know what's happening right now. (laughs) If someone made me guess, I could probably try. But I've been wrong before. And I'll be wrong again. And again, I'm not really interested in predicting. I don't really care, which isn't to say I'm not invested in ending oppression for people or in, you know, making sure everyone has adequate health care. Of course, I care very much about those things, but I'm not, I know that I don't have control of the outcome. I only have control over my own life and the way that I look at things. And so I'll take what little control I'm given and I'll use that for the best. And if that makes a difference and ripples outward, amazing. But I just encourage everyone to take some deep breaths. We're just little teeny pieces of a much bigger puzzle. And whatever happens is going to happen. It might feel like we're making a difference. Maybe we are. Maybe we're not. Doesn't really matter. Just about doing what feels right and intuitive and authentic And then we'll see. And maybe we'll get to look back on this and reflect and define things and see where we were wrong or where we were right. But in the meantime, we just have to be where we are. On that note, I am going to bring you this conversation with my brother. But before that, if you would like to support the podcast please head over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. There are lots of perks over there if you sign up and have a few dollars to donate each month. Uh, We have an exclusive WhatsApp group chat. I'm giving away t-shirts. I post playlists, um, all sorts of different things. So head on over there if you have some extra change to spare. I think I really want to create a book club too at some point. I think I've mentioned that before. I think I might just do it quarterly though, so as to not overwhelm anyone, mostly not overwhelm myself. Um, but I would really like to get some more stuff up on there to uh, for the patrons. So we'll see. Uh, that might be coming soon, but in the meantime, there's lots of other stuff there that you can get. And plus, I hope that when you donate, you're donating because you support the podcast in itself, and that in and of itself is valuable. The perks are just bonus. If you don't have any money to spare, I totally understand. Um, Another way that you can support is just to share episodes with your friends. As I've said many times, my main goal is just to have this podcast reach as far and wide as possible, and um, the only way that I can do that is through your help. Uh, and if you have an extra minute on top of that, I would really appreciate it if you could subscribe and leave some stars and a review on the iTunes store. This helps the podcast show up more in search results and also makes the podcast look more legit so that when I reach out to guests who I want to have on, they go to iTunes, they look at the reviews, they look at the stars and they're like, hell yeah, I want to have a conversation with this person. Seems like people listen. We need your help for that as well. So greatly appreciate it, whether it's Patreon sharing it with your friends or subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. I am going to play you into this conversation with Mika with, um, 
I saved the world today by Eurythmics. Because why not? <laughs> Makes sense, yeah? Enjoy the song, enjoy this conversation, and I will talk to you on the other end. Like a bone that's been left ticking 
Um, okay, so honestly, I have like a hundred billion things I want to ask you and talk about. Uh, <laughs> I don't really know where to begin. <laughs> and of course, like you're my brother, so I did like zero preparation at all. I'm just like, I'll be fine. Um, Love it. But I guess uh, I was thinking in the bath just now about mm-hmm. how um, I actually don't know if I know how you got acquainted with the Happiness Institute, which is where you're doing work right now. Um, yeah. So I'd love to hear like how that how you came about them and why it piqued your interest. And then also you should tell the story about how you first got a job working for them. Yeah, yeah. Well, so it's a bit of a winding road, but I'll I'll, I'll rewind. So I ended up in um, Amsterdam uh, a little while ago, like four years ago, working mostly on music at the time with a Dutch band um, and on some of my own projects. Um, and then uh, for uh, for a lot of reasons, I, I liked music, but I was feeling relatively unfulfilled in a lot of ways. Um, and then uh, 2016 happened and I realized the planet was not the planet that I thought I was living on. Um, so kind of spent the next year or so after that, um, doing a ton of reading and research to try to figure out sort of the most interesting, effective and meaningful ways that I could impact the world. Um, and in doing so, trying to figure out what was really going wrong, because, um, I think like uh, a lot of us, maybe I, um, uh, realized that a lot of my assumptions about how the world works turned out not to be very true. And I didn't totally know where I went wrong in my thinking. So the first thing I did was to try to um, look into see what I was missing and stumbled across this area of happiness research, um, initially through something called the World Happiness Report that's published by the United Nations every year. Um, and then there's kind of a whole academic literature about it. And it's sort of this fringe e becoming more mainstream um, field in economics where the, the simplest way of putting it is instead of focusing on a lot of the things that economists focus on like um, money or GDP or financial return, what if we just tried to go straight to the source and measure happiness um, and, uh, and see how we can improve happiness? Uh, and so in that research, I came across um, this uh, company in Copenhagen, the Happiness Research Institute, uh, and started reading their reports um, and following them on, uh, on, on social media and all that. Um, and I was doing my uh, master's um, at Utrecht University at the time, uh, but I sent an email to somebody who worked at the, the Happiness Research Institute um, asking if I could just talk to them about their research. Honestly, I was mostly just a fan and wanted to know how they did things and, um, and, and kind of learn more about the field. And I got no response. So then I sent a follow-up email like three weeks later, very politely worded, um, and got no response. And I think that continued for probably like three and a half months of me just sending really polite <laughs> emails, uh, like a two to three week interval until finally um, uh, a guy who I uh, now work with, Michael, um, finally sent me an email back uh, and we set up a time to talk on the phone. Um, and it was a really interesting conversation. I, I just, I, I asked him kind of how they did their research and what they were focusing on. Um, and then at the end of it, uh, right as we were about to hang up, uh, he said, oh, by the way, you know, if, if, are you interested in, in doing an internship? Um, and I, 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 I 
kind of wasn't at the time, but of course I said, yeah, sure. That, that sounds great. Um, and then three days later, I got uh, an email from the, the CEO of the company asking to do an interview with me. Um, and then sort of by the end of the week, I had been offered the internship to do it. Um, so I took some time off from my master's to move to Copenhagen for, uh, for about six months to work, to work with them. And then that was about a year and a half ago. And then for the last year, I've stayed on working as, as a, a, a part-time analyst for them, um, working on mostly this report that we just put out. Uh, that's there. Those are the headlines. It's a good argument for persistence. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Normally it's like... It's funny. No, go ahead. Well, I mean, I was just like, I I do this a lot, and (laughs) nine times out of ten it fails, like, spectacularly. I'll either get no response from people, or when I finally get them on the phone, Mm -hmm. they have no idea what to make of me because they think I want something from them, or they they don't really know what I'm doing. And then the conversation just crashes and burns. But every one out of ten times, it goes amazingly well. <laughs> this went better than I thought it was going to go, but it doesn't normally happen that way. It reminds me, too, of when you were looking for graphic design work and helping me uh, yeah. at, at Sudra, where I was working at the time. And then I stopped working there, I guess, and you were like, oh, do you have any other leads, like any other companies that you know? And I was like, well, there is this <laughs> list online uh, there's this big expo <laughs> oh, where man. like every natural products brand has a like their contact info listed on this site. So you're welcome to just like cold email people. And I feel like you got back yeah. to me. You're like, I'm only on the bees and I have like three gigs. It totally worked. <laughs> Dude, I spent every day sending like a minimum of 50 emails out to these different companies. I had, like a whole system. I would look at their website, pick like yeah. three things about them put it in the template and send it out. And then, yeah, got design work that like sustained me for years from that. Yeah. No, that's fucking awesome. So, okay. So backing up in terms of what you said around, like you realized that the world wasn't what you thought it was. I'm curious what you thought it was before our favorite president was elected. Yeah. Well, so if you, I mean, this is, it sounds almost silly to say now, but if you had asked me five years ago where I thought the world was heading, and five years ago, I was like an adult. I was not a, a teenager. I, I should have known better. I would have said we were heading like directly towards liberal paradise, world government. Um, if you look back in history, we're progressing at a perfectly good rate. Things are going to keep going. There are some little hiccups along the way, but overall, like progress is a real thing and there's no chance that we're going backwards. Um, and I certainly thought there was absolutely no chance that anyone like Donald Trump could get elected president. Um, and then I think when it happened, I just, yeah, a lot of things kind of hit me at once because what had been, uh, personal realizations over the couple previous years then turned into kind of global realizations where I left the United States after I graduated college because I was, wasn't particularly excited about the opportunities that I was seeing there. And I didn't really understand the culture in, in a lot of ways. It didn't make tons of sense to me. I saw my friends, um, like really awesome, great, cool people starting to take jobs that, I, I couldn't possibly understand why they were doing it. I, I just didn't really like the vibe of it. 
Um, and so I left kind of trying to figure out, yeah, what I was missing, if there were other countries or cultures that had more to offer. Um, and in retrospect, I'm talking about it as if it was more conscious than it actually was. But then, uh, so slowly, I lived in France for a little while. I lived in Australia for a little while. And then I lived in the Netherlands for a little while. And as I was moving, I kept noticing how much happier people were, um, how much happier they seemed, at least, how much less stressed they seemed, how, how, mu how their values were totally different than mine um, in, in a lot of really key ways, but still we all spoke the same language and, and, and had similar frames of reference. And so I was sort of starting to realize for myself the things that I didn't really like about the United States and that I didn't really like about American culture and was starting to compare that with things that I was seeing around the world. But I still never really thought, I mean, I always thought of that very personally and individually. I didn't think that the problems that I had with the U.S. Uh, were structural or affecting people in such a horribly negative way um, outside of what I was experiencing, um, which maybe was, was sort of a myopic take on things. Um, but then after Trump got elected, it, it seemed to me that there must be something really wrong with the country. And these things that I was frustrated with and, and didn't quite understand, there's much more to them and they go much deeper. And there's people who are suffering from things much more than I am to bring them to a place where they think that voting for somebody like this would be their best option, um, and that sort of what, what set me off. Where do you think like that uh, prior optimism came from in regard to like we're on this trajectory and things are going to get better? Like, do you think that had something to do with like your personal life growing up or your experience at college? Yeah, I think probably a lot. I mean, look, I think I've I've been fortunate to live a pretty privileged life. Things kind of kept getting better for me as I got older. I, I didn't see any real reason why, um, you know, I didn't come face to face with any real, real hardships. Uh, I didn't feel like, um, when I was, when I was growing up. And then also I think, you know, what you learn in school is about the story of progress. You learn how, you know, there used to be slavery in America. Now there's not, there used to be Women used to have no rights. Now they do. Um, everyone used to be poor. Now we're rich. And so I think if you just take a step back and look at those trend lines, at least to me, the obvious conclusion was that there's going to keep going up. Um, and that while there were obvious and terrible, bad exceptions like wars and holocausts and genocides and all the rest of it, um, I never really, I thought that a lot of that stuff was in the past. I thought that the problems that we were going to be sorting out now were going to be mostly, you know, tightening screws around the edges and, and, and just continuing in the patterns that we had already set out for ourselves. Um, so, yeah, I think it was a combination of the fact that, you know, personally, I didn't have any firsthand experience of real hardships, um, at least not the kind that, that other people in the country were experiencing, and then also everything that I was learning from education was just about how throughout history, things have kept getting better and better and better and better. Um, and so I just kept thinking, okay, well, 
that is sort of automatic. I didn't, I don't think I really thought of it as anything that was the result of deliberate actions by motivated people. And instead just sort of thought that over time, good ideas won out um, and good ideas would keep winning out. And, uh, and, and there was no way really we were going to put all of this in jeopardy um, or start moving backwards. Um, that's sort of where I, I ended college with, I think. Yeah, it's funny. I remember before I really had any like real insight to any of this, I remember saying something to myself about how we should be going backwards in a way, at least like, I mean, progress is a difficult word to sort of define, but that progress in my mind felt like we should go back to a lot of the things we were doing before. Uh, and it's interesting yeah. now, like as I've grown up to sort of have more context for that opinion, because before I think it was just some weird, like energetic feeling. Um, yeah. And ha ha what, what do you mean? Like the, the things you were doing before? <clears throat> well, I guess I, I'm trying to think back to like what the initial thought was, and I'm sure it had something to do with the environment. And I didn't, again, I didn't have a lot of yeah. like actual knowledge or insight about this, but it became clear to me at some point that the way we lived alongside and using the earth before, like just yeah. the way that we existed on the planet seemed to be a lot better than what we were doing now. And I sort of saw that like, I don't know, maybe it was spending so much time at summer camp. It was like, we could live yeah. a lot simpler. Um, and actually this is way better. Like I, I don't miss yeah. technology that much. And um, all of this consumption seems unnecessary and I'm sure it had something to do. It's, it, yeah. it's interesting. Cause I feel like we had, although obviously siblings, like I went to this ridiculously like earthy, crunchy elementary school yeah. and you went to like yeah. one of the most prestigious, like, uh, wealthy private high schools ever. So it's just like, I think our, yeah. I, I, I think about that a lot, like how our perspectives on the world, although we did a lot of things together, I think like spending that year that we spent living in Paris, for example, um, mm -hmm. it is interesting to see how just the context in which you're in defines your sort of worldview oh, yeah. in a way. Um, yeah. Oh, for sure. And even, yeah, the colleges we went to, too, I think were pretty starkly different. <laughs> like, I don't, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Sarah Lawrence versus you, Pat. I don't know. Um, yeah, there's some, there some key differences there. So before the election, um, I know you had a very, I think this was another thing we always used to talk about that, like, I feel like I approached things in this way that was like, I don't really know what the plan is. Let's just try it out. And I remember for a while yeah. you were like, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and this and this and this. And then I feel like the election yeah. was sort of like a breaking point for you where I know you had studied philosophy uh, in undergrad and really wanted to become a philosophy professor. Um, yeah. What was that sort of break for you? Or do you still have some desire to do that? Like, how did you deal with... Like, I, this is really what I want to do with my life, and these are the steps I'm going to take, and then sort of, like, changing that, because I think that can be challenging for, I mean, I know it has been even for me when I, like, decide to do something sort of starkly different with my life. It's like, fuck, like, was I wrong before? Are people going to think I'm, you know, stupid or weak for changing my mind? 
Yeah, well, it, I think it, it was a combination of things. Again, I mean, it was like personal and professional because I sort of went all the way up through college until I was 21 thinking I was just the shit and things were just going to keep going on an upward trajectory and everything is going to work out great no matter what. And then immediately upon graduation, I got dumped, moved in, like in with my mom and was a bartender and then had like no plans for the future and quickly realized like, oh shit, okay, things can start going really wrong. Um, and then, I, then I, I, I still really wanted to be a philosophy professor and then I applied to PhD programs in philosophy thinking like, oh, I'll, I'll get into the top ones in the country. This will be a breeze. It'll be great. Didn't get into anything that I applied to. And this all happened within like six months of leaving school. So now I have like no girlfriend, no job, no future prospects, and like totally no plan. Um, and sort of out of necessity had to kind of come up with a new plan and, and think about things that I didn't want, um, uh, think about new things that I wanted to do rather. Um, and then from there, I sort of just followed my nose. And it's funny. I mean, I spent the next, I still do this. I, 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 I'm not, I'm not the only one, right. To have this realization that you make plans and then God laughs, but I, I, I consistently set up for myself one to five to 10 year plans, not like formally, but in my head. And then without fail, like three months, uh, another whopping change in my life. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, yeah. So then what I, I had moved to France and I was teaching English at a school um, and I was planning on coming back and starting the PhD programs in philosophy when I came back. And then I didn't get into any of them and realized, well, I don't really want to go back now and just get a job doing something that I'm not really passionate about. And I've always wanted to go to Australia. So let's go to Australia. That sounds pretty cool. So then I went to Australia and then when I was there, I enjoyed it, um, but then, and I was making music at the time, um, and was planning on going back to the States after Australia, and then uh, some Dutch uh, musicians found my music online and, and wanted me to come out to play some shows with them and record some things in, in Amsterdam and the Netherlands, so I thought, okay, amazing, let's do that. It totally wasn't my plan, just following my nose around, and then like expected that was going to last for about three to six months. And then I would be going back to the States again. Um, and that was now like four years ago and I haven't been back to the States since. Of course, I like <laughs> met someone else here who I fell in love with, which was totally not the plan. Um, and then stayed here for that reason and decided I wanted to go back to school and found the happiness research Institute. So I don't know. I think like a lot of it was mostly out of necessity. Um, and I think for me, at least, it always felt like if I had a plan, even if it didn't work out in the end, I was okay. I'm definitely at my worst when I have no plans, I think. So if something doesn't end up working out, I like frantically try to find a new thing to dedicate all my time to. And then again, sort of without fail, it doesn't end up the way that I want to. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it was also just a, a, a humbling experience after I graduated college that my first choice options are not always going to be the way what's going to end up happening. And also that maybe that's a good thing. Like, I've, I mean, I've had all kinds of really cool experiences and, and, and met wonderful people who I never would have come anywhere near if I had just everything had worked out in the way that I had planned. So I think the combination of those, I'm, I'm, I've started to be a little bit 
more humble if things don't work out exactly as I want them to work out and also a little bit more reassured that even if they don't, um, it'll be okay. I mean, I guess I'm still quite fortunate that nothing terrible has happened, that I haven't completely fallen off. Um, uh, and for the most part, if, if something, if one door closes, another one opens. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't really remember what your question was. Got me on a tangent there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't but really it's... remember what it was either. Uh, but I was going to say, like, I have <laughs> noticed that. I think I remember talking to you, like, more in your early 20s when something didn't happen and you were like, I'm going to die. Like, I have no oh, idea yeah. how I'm going to survive this. And I think even recently, yeah. I mean, I'd love for you to talk about this too. Like, you wanted, you still wanted to go get your PhD, but... Yeah. couldn't quite figure out because of what interests you it doesn't really fit yeah. into any sort of like normal program um yeah and I, and correct me if i'm wrong it sounded like and you can talk about this project it sounded like what you wanted to work on in school is sort of what you're really working on within the institute now yeah almost exactly yeah <laughs> yeah almost almost exactly that that's that's what's been going on so yet, can you talk about that? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, so I think as well for for the PhD, and this is also kind of um, a shift that I've tried to enact, and I'm still failing to most days, but I'm trying to enact that. It, and I'll just speak personally, I guess, coming from an American context, like credentials and pedigree and achievements that I can prove with a piece of paper put on a resume have always had a lot of value, or at least they've seemed like they have a lot of value. So in the past, I've, I've structured my life around pursuing those things and then trying to get my interests to fit around them. So if I, if I pursue the, 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 yeah, the goal, the achievement, the reward, um, then I can kind of like fit myself around it and get my interests around it. And recently I've been trying to switch that to not necessarily put that first or put my interests first and think, okay, is this program pedigree achievement plan, does that work with what I'm actually interested in? So over the last couple of years I was, and I still sort of, if I, if I can figure out a way to make it work, would love to get a PhD and do research um, but the last round when I started looking into that, it started smelling a lot like if I were to go through with this, the main reasons I were to be going through with this were not reasons of interest, but reasons of achievement. Um, and at the end of the day, I decided not even to apply to any of the programs that I was looking into because they didn't really they weren't going to allow me to do exactly the types of things that I wanted to do. And meanwhile, while I was working for the happiness research Institute, I was able to work on a lot of the research and still am working on a lot of the research that is almost exactly what interests me. Um, and even though that wasn't necessarily my first plan, uh, at the end of the day, it just seemed like I wasn't comfortable. Yeah. I mean, trying to do that, again, trying to fit myself around, uh, an ideal of a goal that I want, as opposed to try to pursue the things that interest me and sort of let the goals appear along the way. Um, so that's sort of why I pulled out. I mean, I'm still considering it. I would really, I mean, I, I, I do like academia. I really like the idea of teaching. Um, and I love the idea of doing research. 
So if I can find a PhD program that can sort of allow me to focus on what I'm interested in, it's not really a lot of like PhDs of happiness, unfortunately, <laughs> which I find personally incredible, actually. But there's like, yeah. there are schools and divisions of study for like every possible aspect of every field you can imagine. Um, but there's no PhD in happiness. There's no real PhD of well-being. Um, if I want to do the research that I want to do, I sort of have to fit it in economics or social science or sociology or um, philosophy. And also the challenge with that is that academia tends to be pretty um, sequestered in terms of the departments and domains. I mean, there's a lot of talk about cross-pollinating research between different fields, but then when it comes down to it, you have to get a PhD in something. I can't get a PhD in philosophy slash psychology <laughs> slash economics. It's not really yeah. a thing. I have to choose a topic. Um, and at least so far, it seems like what I've been doing at the Happiness Research Institute actually is allowing me to do all of that stuff in a much more fluid way um, without having to fit it squarely within um, an academic discipline. Which is why I think I'm, I'm going to try to continue doing it for for as long as I can, um, and at least why so far I haven't I haven't decided to go back the the academic route. Yeah, we talked too about like maybe a better option or route would be to like find a person or a mentor or a professor who yeah. was doing something yeah. that you thought was really cool and sort of just like get folded in under that wing potentially. Um, yeah, because yeah, exactly. I, I, th yeah. I think what's interesting about quote unquote happiness research is that I don't think that it's not that there is a specific department. I think it's like it is all departments. Like I can't really think <laughs> of one that it doesn't involve. Right. It yeah. is philosophical. It is psychological. It's anthropological. It's a story like there are so yeah. many different things Definitely. that this fits under that it's sort of ironic that you have to whittle it down because it it's like inherently broad. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's personally one of the things that fascinates me most about it because I get to like do research in all of these disparate areas and, and fields of study. But it is, I think, also what's been so challenging for the field to establish itself in academia because mm -hmm. there isn't a clear heading that it fits under. There isn't really a clear um, domain. And, and I think, in fact, it kind of works against it. I mean, I think happiness research there there's a version of it in psychology called positive psychology there's a version of it in economics um and there's kind of a version of it in philosophy um but they don't really end up talking to each other very much they all have different languages for things and if you're doing kind of economic uh, aspects of uh of happiness research then there tends to be a little bit of a shyness about making broad philosophical claims and then if you're going to do the philosophical side of happiness there's a shyness about using data or um, making any empirical claims um, and so yeah it's 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 kind of a bit challenging it's both it's the best and and worst thing about it in a way because it it's so broad um, but uh, which is which is fascinating but then it also makes it relatively difficult to fit into this the, the academic um, framework that's that's usually set up so this project that you're working on now, which I think is what you had said you really wanted to do um, in terms of a PhD program as well, as well, is sort of using happiness as a metric similar to GDP, right? Yeah, that's the goal. <laughs> that's the goal, something <laughs> um, like that. 
Yeah. So was that your idea or did you sort of take that and um, elaborate on it? And and then also, um, yeah, like, was that a project that the Institute was already working on or was that something that you sort of really wanted to research specifically? So the, the broad idea of, I mean, happiness as GDP has been what's fascinated me personally since I started getting into the field. I think that is kind of the holy grail of happiness research. If you can find a metric that can function in the way that GDP functions, there's a whole debate about whether you want one metric or multiple metrics, but something that you can track over time and seek to improve that's a better proxy for well-being than GDP, and that focuses on things like happiness um, that can be kind of usable for policymakers, that is really the holy grail. And that's that's definitely what, what I think I, I want to dedicate a lot of my time researching and trying to figure out. Um, when I got to the Happiness Research Institute, they had just gotten a project um, for a company called Leaps to de- develop a metric to measure the happiness return on investment. Um, so Leaps is a company that's actually funded by Bayer, uh, the pharmaceutical company. And they, I think it's like they, they, they just shoot for wacky ideas. So I don't know how, to what extent Bayer um, is counting on any of these ideas to actually pan out, but they give them a certain amount of money to just go think crazily and invest in wacky things that you wouldn't normally invest in. Um, and so they came to us with the project of how can we measure the happiness return on investment. So in the business community and in, um, in health uh, more specifically, a lot of the metrics that they rely on should, okay, so if I'm choosing between medications, which medication should I invest in? Um, if I'm choosing between business ventures, which business venture should I invest in? And there's tons of literature and, and resources that are devoting to figure out how you can get the biggest financial return. Um, so in general, the, the sort of received wisdom is that you should invest your money where you'll make the most profit. And the idea underlying that is profit is a proxy for well-being because profit means that there's more activity in a marketplace and so more people are buying things and if they buy more things then they get happier and so if you make more profit then you're making people happier um and that's wrong for a lot of reasons that we can talk about it's it's certainly oversimplified to say the least um but there isn't really a competing uh, there's starting to be but there isn't an established competing metric for measuring the happiness return on investment or the well-being return on investment. Um, So that's what they came to us to do. Um, And then the project sort of fell on my lap and um, a coworker of mine, Michael, and we got to sort of come up with all of these ideas ourselves, which, which was also really amazing. We had kind of complete intellectual free reign to come up with whatever we wanted to. And so we started thinking mostly in health um, how can you measure the happiness return on investment in health? How can you, which then turned into a question, sort of how can you measure the well-being burden of disease? So which which disease is, um, how much well-being is lost um, to diabetes or to Parkinson's or to Alzheimer's or to depression? How can you measure that? And once you can measure that, then you can say, okay, if we can treat depression or we can treat Parkinson's, then this is how much well-being is likely to be produced. Um, and so in that process, the, the, the then simplified version of it is 
we were trying to weight these conditions in terms of subjective well-being and happiness. And maybe I should probably just like define the way that we think about happiness. Yeah, um, yeah. I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah. Because um, it, it's, I mean, a lot of people have uh, obviously ideas about what happiness means. And I think in general, when people heal, hear happiness, they think about sort of joyful, smiling people walking arm in arm down the street, skipping. Um, and that's, that is, I would probably say those are likely happy people, but that's not really what we tend to focus on. So the two main dimensions that we look at are affect. So your mood, that is sort of generally what people think about. Are you happy? Are you sad? Are you anxious? Are you bored? Are you hopeful? All of that falls under the category of affect. Um, but then more importantly for us and more importantly, usually from a policymaking perspective, we define happiness in terms of an overall evaluation of your life as a whole. So are you satisfied with your life? If you're completely satisfied with your life, then we generally think that we would call that person happy. That's, that would be our definition of happiness. Um, so, do you, I mean, do you think the things that you do are meaningful in your life would be another uh, overall evaluation, kind of a, a subjective judgment of your life? So, and also, like, how much does this relate to stress even more that, or lack thereof? versus happiness like to me it sounds like happiness equals the least amount of stress in one's life yeah so it sort of does i mean stress would fall under the category of affect i think um it it not necessarily uh, stress isn't really an overall evaluation it's more a feeling um it's more an emotional state so it, it is i think possible for someone to be satisfied with their life and still be stressed a lot um uh i mean i I don't know about you but i've been watching this um last dance documentary on netflix with michael jordan amazing (laughs) i think he might be a guy (laughs) who probably would be satisfied with his life but then on a day-to-day basis might genuinely be stressed right Um, i guess i guess i'm thinking like you can be sad satisfied while stressed, but maybe not healthy while stressed. And like, how much does healthy equal happiness? But yeah, okay, I'm breaking this down. Definitely, no, 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 that's definitely true. And, and there's, there's definitely like multiple, there's people break it down in the literature that there's two kinds of stress. So there's like stress that you get from uh, that are goal oriented or achievement based. So you're stressed because you want to finish a project or you're stressed because of a deadline or you're stressed because of something that you have going on, which is a much different category of stress than stressed about uh, life circumstances that are beyond your control. If you don't know how you're going to make money, if you don't um, feel like there's anyone uh, who you can trust, who, who would be there for you in a time of need. Those are two completely different categories of stress. And I would argue that it would be really difficult to be satisfied with your life if you fall into that latter category, uh, category of being stressed. Um, but in general, the way we think about happiness is like, it, it's all encompassing. I mean, ideally it's, you, you have a high degree of positive affect. So you do tend to feel uh, happy. You tend to feel grateful. You feel connected to other people. You're, you're not typically very stressed. You're not typically very anxious. You're not typically bored um, or angry. But also uh, coupled with that is that you, you feel like you're living a good life. You feel like the things you do in your life have meaning um, and that you're satisfied with, with the life you lead. Um, yeah. But, but so, so <laughs> basically the project, to go back to the project, was to try to figure out how we can wait 
these health impacts in terms of happiness and happiness specifically defined in terms of these things like stress and being satisfied with your life. Um, and so that's where we looked at a bunch of data to, between people with different conditions um, and seeing how, how, how satisfied with their life they were, how much they thought the things they did in their life were worthwhile, how, how stressed, how angry, how bored um, they thought they were. And what ends up happening is you get a much different picture of health than the one that is typically presented to you or the one that you typically imagine. So a lot of the ways that health is measured in, um, in current ways of, of, of evaluations that I'm talking about, like if you want to decide which treatment you should invest in or not, the measurements that they use are based on uh, public valuations. So in other words, they're based on asking uh, you know, representative samples of populations okay, which disease do you think is worse? Do you think depression is worse or do you think Parkinson's is worse? It's a little more complicated than that, but not really. <laughs> they describe these diseases in like lay descriptions and then say, okay, would you rather um, be in a wheelchair or would you rather, it's <laughs> really bad, <laughs> or would you rather, you know, be missing an arm? Yeah. Um, and, and they do these things, they give people these, these options for hundreds of hundreds of diseases, and then they can kind of extrapolate from that to the diseases that people think are the most burdensome. Um, and in a lot of countries, uh, physical health seems to be much more important to people, or at least seems much scarier not to have physical health than mental health. So if you ask people, would you rather be experiencing depression or would you rather have chronic pain or would you rather be in a wheelchair or would you rather have some physical health condition? Most of the times the physical health condition seems a lot scarier um, than the mental health condition. But the method that we're trying to argue for is that if you actually go ask patients um, how they're doing, if you ask patients with depression, if you ask patients who are in wheelchairs, if you ask patients with, with all kinds of different diseases and, and health states, uh, how satisfied they are with their life, for instance, you get a, almost the reverse picture. So mental and social health in particular are crucially important um, determinants of, of your happiness Whereas for a lot of physical health conditions, a lot of people adapt to them and in some cases even end up happier than they were beforehand because they discover new communities, they discover new meaning in their life. Um, and we, we weren't the first ones to make this observation. There's, there been, there's been research about this for, for a while now. But I think there's a hesitance to accept that at face value. I think there, there, there's people have difficulty in accepting that if – you know, from the perspective of happiness, then there might not really be a difference between a happy disabled person and a happy able, able-bodied person. That there's not, it, for, for, if, if they're both completely satisfied with their life, then somebody who focuses on happiness would have a difficult time differentiating the two of those people, the two of them. And a lot of people are, are relatively uncomfortable with that. And I think the argument that we want to try to promote is to take those assessments a little bit more seriously. Um, and maybe it's not the people with disabilities who are mistaken about their quality of life, but it's our <laughs> own uh, misconceptions and ideas about what quality of life really is. Um, so anyway, that was a long-winded way of saying then we tried to, to use all of that and put it in a metric um, called well-being adjusted life years. Uh, so 
you think about what the well-being burden of depression is or the well-being burden of Parkinson's, you can think about it in terms of the amount of well-being adjusted life years um, that a person loses because of their disease. Um, and it gets more complicated from there, but that's the, that's the basic idea. Yeah, because I was going to ask, like, how do you deal with the, the relativ- relativity of and, like, subjective nature of opinion, right? Because... Mm. And, and then also the cultural difference. Like I would imagine that they're what people report as happiness in one country versus another, especially if we're talking about like the East and the West or like, you know, someone who would yeah. be living in like a hunter gatherer tribe versus like a multimillionaire businessman in New York city. You know, um, there's no way that yeah. their metrics for happiness are the same. So how do you adjust for all of those differences in one metric and how much are you relying on people to know what the fuck they're talking about (laughs) yeah well so without this metric the current way of doing things is relying on people to know what they're talking about and there i think you have the cultural element is huge i mean it's one of the reasons why i think depression and mental health have gotten uh such limited attention and resources you know 15 20 years ago it's starting to change now I think loneliness and, and sort of social health is where mental health was about 10 years ago. Now people are starting to talk about loneliness in a real way. But there's sort of such a cultural stigma against it. Or stigma might even be the wrong word. There's just there hasn't – people haven't really known how to deal with it, how to talk about it. They, if people were depressed, they didn't really bring it up. Like you've probably seen a lot of these headlines that adolescents and teenagers are now more depressed than they've ever been. And these, these depression lines for kids are going up and we should be really concerned about it. And they are going up. But one of the potential explanations for that is not that there are more depressed kids now than there ever were, but that there's more of an acceptance in admitting that you're depressed and saying that you're depressed. So now there's just more kids who are willing to say um, or answer questions honestly when they're asked about them um, in terms of their depression. And I think when you're relying on other people to judge the health status of patients, for instance, um, then these cultural elements are going to be huge. If you don't have any firsthand experience with the disease, your opinion about it is largely going to be formed by um, uh, cultural elements and social elements and things that, that, that don't really have anything to do with patient experience. Um, so I think if you focus on individual patients by asking them what their quality of life are, you definitely get a much more reliable assessment of how unhappy a person would be because of their disease. But also that still is probably going to change dependent on the culture. Like <clears throat> we find <clears throat> differences between, you know, the burden of Parkinson's or maybe a better example, the burden of, of high cholesterol or diabetes or lung disease is going to be much higher in a country that doesn't have a healthcare system that can take care of people um, if they need if they need treatment for it than a healthcare system that can. And if there's more of a cultural stigma against a particular disease in one place, then that disease, a person living with that disease is probably going to have a worse time um, with it than if they were living in a culture that was more accepting of it. I think for for us, or at least for me personally, my argument is I think that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I think that's kind of a strength of happiness research is that you're not prescribing one version of the good life for anyone. You're letting them decide what it is for themselves. So two people can both be satisfied with their lives completely on their own terms. And we would take that 
um, uh, we would take that seriously as opposed to saying, well, if you don't have a high paying job or you're not married or you don't have kids or if you're in a wheelchair, well, then your, your quality of life really can't be what you think it is. What, what we're saying is actually you should you should be paying attention to that. If they think their quality of life is high, then they should have the right to decide for themselves what it is. And I think that there are still, of course, there's going to be cultural differences between countries in the way that people answer those questions. Um, and when you're asking patients, you should ask the patients in the specific country. Like it would be a mistake to think that the burden, the well-being burden of high cholesterol in France would be the same as the burden in America, the same as in Brazil or in Asia. Definitely not. I think you actually need to ask patients living with these conditions in the countries that they have them, um, which we did in this, in this research. But then I think, yeah, it's, it's totally plausible that burdens in different countries effects on well-being would be very different depending on what cultural norms are, depending on what, um, uh, what healthcare systems are in place, depending on what society thinks of them. But yeah, I think, I think that's almost unavoidable to a certain extent. Um, and I think there are, there, there are definitely, uh, plus sides to that as well. So, uh, so GDP is obviously, I think sort of aligned with a very like capitalist, you know, profit equals good <laughs> profit equals mm-hmm. positive, uh, perspective. Yeah. Whereas what you're doing, I would imagine probably butts heads with, uh, some, a lot of different sort of like capitalistic, uh, ideals, but it also sounds like a yeah. lot of the businesses that approach the happiness Institute Bayer, for example, these are like, and I think you talked about how one of the issues you were having in trying to study this, uh, as far as a PhD goes, was that like, there is a big portion of this research that's focused on like corporatism in a way, um, yeah. which seems like an interesting dichotomy to me because I almost feel like a lot of the research that you'd put out would be sort of, um, would contradict the business of these sort of like large money guzzling corporations. Um, so it's interesting to me that they're sort of coming to you and like, how, how does that happen? Does that ever work that where you're basically like, yeah, the entire way you're running your business model is like counteractive to happiness. (laughs) Here you go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there's definitely, there definitely have been some awkward interactions. Um, and it doesn't always line up in the way that you think it does. Um, I mean, I think that, I think that is true for a lot of fields in general. If you go to a financial consulting firm, even, and a business says, okay, how should we be handling our finances? There's a good chance that the financial consulting firm could say, well, you should stop doing what you're doing because that's not working for you. Um, and I think the, the disagreements are a little deeper with us because um, we're not necessarily just disagreeing with your business model, but with your values. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it definitely can make for some awkward conversations. I mean, in my experience, though, at least on this report, uh, it was, we had a lot of freedom to come up with the ideas that we want. Now, whether those ideas are going to be put into practice remains to be seen. We obviously have no say in how Bayer handles their business or does their investing. Um, so if they use these, the tools that we develop for them, that would be amazing, but there's no necessarily no guarantee that they'll do it. Um, and a lot of the stuff that we find in the report might contradict some of that. I mean, 
we focus, for instance, a lot on you know, mental health and social health because the data tells us that people who are lonely and people who are anxious and people who are depressed are suffering much more um, than people with pain, for instance, um, uh, physical pain. And I think a, a big part of that is because there are already treatments for physical pain um, that can be successful in a way that there really aren't for um, mental or social pain. But yeah, I mean, I don't know what would what would a bear look like if they used well-being as a metric. Um, I think it would look like a much different company than it does now. I mean, how how, how do you treat loneliness? I don't think you'll be able to treat it with the pill. Um, I think you'd have to treat that with getting people to be more in contact with each other. To me, that's kind of an amazing thought to imagine if the pharmaceutical industry, and I don't want to hate on the pharmaceutical industry, they do a lot of wonderful things, but if they spent as much energy and investment and resources into figuring out how to bring people closer together and get them more established in their communities and feel less lonely and trust each other more and feel more connected, for the exact same reasons that they're investing in medications and treatments and pills because of the positive health effects of it, um, what kind of a world would that look like? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I can't necessarily see that happening anytime soon, but um, I, think, I think it would be pretty amazing. And, and, and in general, though, I, I, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, but don't you think there's, there's two things going on? Like, yes, I think we need pills and we need the pharmaceutical industry and we need modern healthcare, but don't you think there's like an equally parallel goal, which is to make money? And so it's like we can disguise, we can sort of like just sweep the making money goal under the we're trying to get people healthy goal. And that looks really pretty. But I think obviously the reason that there, how, what kind of profit would be involved in social infrastructure, especially as far as pharmaceutical companies go, because that's just not like how they're set up. I'm sure we could think about creative ways to to make money off of these things. But I think that's was sort of my point that it's like what you're suggesting are more communal social uh, things that individuals would be investing in less than larger corporations, just because simply they're looking at their bottom line. Yeah. So I mean, what I'm thinking is pretty, what I'm proposing is pretty radical at its root. I mean, at the end of the day, the way that the private sector and governments are set up to a large extent is to maximize return on investment or to maximize economic growth. And at the root of the argument of uh, happiness research, and at least my interpretation of it, is that that's not what we should be focusing on. Now, the reason that we started focusing on things like financial return and GDP in an optimistic take on things was because people thought that they were genuinely good proxies for well-being. And if to a large extent they were, I mean, I would never go to third world countries in South America or East Asia or sub-Saharan Africa and say, you know, what you guys really need to focus on is loneliness. No, I mean, what you guys really need to focus on is making sure people are fed and have jobs and equal rights. So that story worked for a while where these things were good proxies for well-being for for a long time. Now, once you get to the level that Western countries have long passed, where um, for the most part, people, their basic needs are generally taken care of. No one is starving to death in in Western Europe. 
um, people generally have shelter with, with, with big exceptions. Once you sort of get to that level, then those indicators stop being really good, good proxies for it. And so what I think I'm suggesting is we should move away from focusing on those indicators and start focusing on a completely different set of indicators that don't really have, uh, you know, that maybe financial profit and economic growth are uh, aligned with them and good, good companions to them, but certainly not necessarily, that's not guaranteed to always be the case. Um, and yeah, that's also sort of why I, what I want to try to do with a good portion of my life is focus on the public policy angle. I mean, I think this also what I was trying to do with the metric. I think if you, in companies and in governments, I think there is a genuine appreciation now for the shortcomings of a lot of these ways of doing business. I, I, I don't think that you can find many serious people now who really think that the best way to improve social welfare is to maximize profit um, or that the best way to improve social welfare in, in developed countries full stop is economic growth. I think you would have a difficult time finding serious people who would agree with that nowadays, even though that was by far the mainstream view like 20, 30 years ago even. Um, I think that's now starting to change. The problem is that there isn't a good alternative yet. Um, these models and metrics and ways of doing things are so entrenched at this point that you need a competing story, a competing narrative, a competing set of tools to be able to switch over to them. Um, and that's also why I'm kind of excited about a lot of this research that now I think there is, a, I mean, especially look what's happening with coronavirus. If, there, if you ever needed evidence that our economic system was not always aligned with supporting well-being, this is a pretty damn good example of it. Um, and hopefully, you know, people can start uh, changing over to, to, to a new system. Yeah, that's an optimistic take on things. But, yeah, it's yeah. funny when you're like, I don't think you could find any serious person. I'm like, well, I think the problem is there's a lot more not serious people. Than <laughs> yeah. There's a lot more idiots than there are smart people in the world. Um, but I also think, yeah. yeah, like, and you brought up that thing about, you know, that that, that metric was valuable for some time. And I think there are aspects of it, in my mind, that seem valuable. Like, yes, people should have enough food to eat. But I also think if you go to a lot of different countries that to us look poor and they must be severely unhappy because they don't have electricity and because, you know, they share a room with four other people or because they don't have a quote unquote job as we see jobs, you know, to them, they don't even understand, like, why would I want those things? I'm I'm perfectly content. I have a lot of well-being. I am happy. I am fulfilled. Um, So, yeah, I, I, I think... I think maybe like a bigger problem is this larger concept and experience of like admitting we were wrong about a lot of shit and that that's the hardest part because that's like a really humbling, vulnerable position to take, I think. Yeah, I think you're I don't think that'll ever happen. I think we'll, we'll, we'll cruise right past admitting we were wrong and, and just like pretend like whatever the next good system of ideas were, we came up with ourselves Mm. and this is just continuing the the project that we were always going to go for. I don't, I am super pessimistic that there's going to be a big mea culpa moment. 
Um, I think in general, if progress is going to happen, it's going to happen by people slowly starting to move and adopt other people's ideas subtly, transform them and make them their own and pretend like they came up with them as opposed to just admitting, actually, we, we, we were wrong here. Um, but on the other hand, <laughs> it's getting pretty difficult. It's, it's going to continue to get difficult to not admit that ways that we're doing things are wrong. I mean, I think that's also what I what is so interesting about happiness research in a lot of ways is if you look at uh, graphs of happiness, like in income, people's income stops mattering for their happiness on an individual level at a certain threshold. I think it's $70,000 per year in Western countries, which is a high threshold. But then it doesn't matter if you make $100,000 a year or $100 million a year, you have an equal chance of being happy. That A lot of the ways that we tended to think about things, that just the richest countries are going to be the happiest ones. That's not true. There's a lot of countries that are not particularly rich that are doing really happy. Latin America, as you're saying, Latin America is a really good case study of the types of things you're talking about, where they always consistently score far above where you would think they would score in terms of their happiness levels based on their GDP and their employment and level of development. Um, and the leading explanation for that, at least the way that I've understood it, is, is that the community and social family ties are so strong that they more than compensate for whatever benefit you're going to get from getting a $40,000 a year job versus a $30,000 a year job. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think you're definitely right um, that that a lot of the ways that we've been doing things are wrong, and I think they're going to get increasingly difficult to ignore. I mean, climate change in particular is probably the most obvious example of this. Where, I mean, it's it's I think already impossible to ignore the reality of climate change, and it's only going to become more impossible as the years go ahead. This, this idea that we can just keep producing. Um, with no regard for the waste that uh, is is being offshoot because of it, I think is is, is going to get increasingly untenable. And when it becomes totally untenable, hopefully there's a new set of ideas and systems that people can pick up that works. Um, hopefully, uh, I mean, yeah. there's something cool like in 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 Amsterdam that like they just formally adopted this framework of donut economics, um, which is. Uh, a framework developed by unbelievable woman, Kate Rawworth, uh, who wrote the book, Donut Economics. Um, and it also makes all the same arguments that we do uh, against GDP and against financial return and says, instead, you need to be thinking about well-being in terms of a donut with sections of the donut for um, uh, social well-being, sections for cultural well-being, sections for um, environmental sustainability. And instead of just focusing on one GDP, for instance, you should be focusing on all eight of these things. And in the midst of coronavirus, the government of Amsterdam has now formally adopted that as their new economic system, as opposed to focusing on economic growth. There was another thing that just happened where hundreds of Dutch academics signed uh, a petition basically adopting versions of, of degrowth principles to lower economic growth and to adopt new economic systems. That's again, in my more optimistic moments throughout coronavirus, you're starting to see new ideas creep into formal settings in a way that at least to me, is kind of uh, exciting. Do you feel the same way that I feel, which is like this very guilty sense of like 
gratitude or happiness that coronavirus is happening simply because it (laughs) is breaking down a lot of like bullshit uh that you know if if we're not going to sit here and on our own come have like the come to jesus moment that we were wrong i don't really understand how this is going to happen without some sort of like external provoking Totally. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this before. I think like there's a pretty clear pattern in history where giant leaps forward in uh, progress tend to happen after giant leaps backward. Um, and there needs to be some, or at least there seems like there needs to be some giant crisis to wake everyone up to what is really important um, and then adapt the system to their needs. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm curious what, what you think about it. I, I, go back and forth. I think in general, I am optimistic. I think that this crisis is unique in, I mean, especially even at, at, like, I've never seen so much interest in mental health and loneliness as I'm starting to see now. I've never seen so much interest in alternative economic principles that um, I'm seeing now. I think there's a sense also there isn't a particular enemy, um, I think that was a big problem with like the last two crises that we faced of, of 2001 and then 2008, where the enemy was Muslims or the enemy was bankers. And that just served to tear the country apart even more. Whereas this, you know, the enemy, <laughs> there's a lot of people trying to make it China, but I think the, the enemy is certainly a, 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 a virus that's affecting everybody. And hopefully that can maybe bring us together in a way that, um, other slower movements wouldn't be possible, um, wouldn't be able to do. So yeah, I don't know. I am like kind of optimistic that we're going to come out of this better than when we went into it. Um, of course I could be horribly wrong, but I don't know. What do you think? I mean, it's interesting, like in terms of finding an enemy, because I do think, you know, of course the reason we're unhappy and lonely is not because of the coronavirus. Like that's just yeah. sort of exposing something that was already there. So I do, I think I am a generally optimistic person, but I also feel like I'm generally optimistic because I don't know how else to be. Like, I don't know how to live. Um, I don't, I'm not optimistic in the sense that I like, am. I think things will get better. I just think there's a possibility that they might. And that's, that's good enough. Cause if I did it, like, why am I even here? Um, yeah. But I I do get concerned that there is, even though there is a virus going on, that we are projecting maybe too much at that itself or, or whatever has um, <clears throat> manifested as a result of social distancing, etc. And then yeah. we, you know, we go back to quote unquote normal life and that feels so much better than staying alone in our homes that we forget that that quality of life to begin with wasn't all that great. Um, so that's, that's a concern of mine. And I also think it's really fascinating. I don't know if you've experienced this in America, certainly there's a lot of like pretty, what I thought were smart, informed people that don't think there's a virus at all that thinks this is like a global vaccine, Bill Gates conspiracy. Um, Oh, yeah, the pandemic. Or the yeah. 5G stuff, you know? Um, yeah, which right. I think, you know, it's fascinating to me, though, because I actually think that type of, like, militant, sort of religious scapegoating 
isn't that much different energetically from seeing all of this just in terms of the virus as like the enemy just as or the banking system mm. right or muslims um mm. i i yeah. i'm much more comfortable with being like well but why did this happen like why do why do we have this virus how did this happen what might yeah. our you know what we're doing as far as like running countries and humanity and the food system and all these other things um how yeah. might that have made this possible? Yeah, that's a totally fair point and critique. Yeah, I think I think the more we just focus exclusively on defeating this enemy, I mean, that's also why I get a little bit uncomfortable with the language of, of you know, we're at war with coronavirus. That then totally. if you do focus too much on just yeah, defeating this so-called enemy of coronavirus, then once the enemy's won you're not going to go back and actually examine all of the ways that we got here. There's like a funny meme that was going around. that was like, you know, let's not pretend that the yeah. world of 80 hour work weeks and like was just a mental health paradise before all of this happened that we can't wait to get back to. Um, so yeah, I mean, I totally, I totally think that's a fair point. Uh, I, yeah, I, I definitely think that's fair. On the, on the other hand, I think it's going to be increasingly hard. Like, I don't know, man, Try telling people that tying their health insurance to their employer is a good idea after this crisis or telling people that, you know, essential workers should be making $8 an hour. I mean, I don't know. I think that those arguments are going to get increasingly difficult for people to stomach. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 I share that concern. I think that's a fair, that's a fair point that if we, if we focus too much on this, then – we won't focus enough on what got us here in the first place. I'm curious how your experience, like li living in the Netherlands now, but I think also both of us are, were raised in a sort of very like multicultural sort of a way. Um, I think purposefully, yeah. like I remember our mom being like, I'm, we're moving to Paris for a lot of reasons, but one of them is because I want you guys to see that your reality is only one possible reality. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so I'm curious how, like your experience in living in a country now, which I personally think is one of the most sort of progressive, smart, just fucking normal countries there is, um, affects yeah. your level of uh, optimism or even just the way that you see the world, um, and like how important that is or has been for you to live in all of these different cultures and to exist within all of these different contexts um, and how that yeah. might be pretty different than someone that's never left Kansas. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there that that's probably as essential a part of who I am as anything is. I mean, the, the, my experience living in different countries and, and experiencing different cultures and I do attribute a lot of that to when we spent that year in Paris when I was eight, I guess you were 12 years old. Um, because I think, I mean, I'm, I've sort of described it in the past as like a, a theory of mind 2.0. So there's like a moment when babies are developing that they realize that like other people also have thoughts and their own internal dialogue that's different from them. And that's a big moment because then they can relate to people in a different kind of a way. I feel like, 
us moving to Paris for me was like theory of mind 2.0, where I realized that there was a world outside of America of people living lives that were different than the lives that I knew about, that sounded different, that looked different, that, that had, I mean, major things in common, but a lot of things not in common with any of what I was familiar with. And these people were walking around seemingly not caring. I mean, I, 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 I sort of, I don't remember <laughs> putting it in these terms when I was a kid, but I remember walking around like just not being able to believe that these people didn't have the same restaurants that we had in the U S or the same shows on TV or I, I just have the same movies. I couldn't, I, it, it just didn't click. I, I, I couldn't imagine how they were able to like live their lives without all of that stuff. I think now more in my adult years, that still fascinates me, like how people around the world are living lives that are totally disconnected from the culture that I was, that I grew up with. I mean, not totally, I mean, I'm in Europe for, for, for a big portion, but in major ways, nothing like American culture. They, they, they don't focus or care about any of the same things that, that Americans do. They live their lives in a very different way. And yet they're able to be, in my experience, not only as fulfilled and happy as Americans, but oftentimes even more fulfilled and happy as Americans. And yeah, it's, it's too simple to put it in optimistic or pessimistic, because on the one hand, it, 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 it really blew my mind clean off to experience a culture that had actually implemented ideas that... I could only dream about being implemented in the U.S. I don't, and I don't mean to make it out like the Netherlands is a, a paradise of utopic human society, but the way that people live their lives here, the things that they care about, the things that they prioritize as a society are things that I could never even really dream of happening in, in America. And the fact that they're happening over here and not even just in the Netherlands, but in, in other countries does make me optimistic in a sense that, okay, so it is possible to do these things. I think if you stay in America for so long, you, you just, you can't imagine, at least for me personally, I couldn't imagine a life that wasn't centered around achievement or uh, that didn't have this political system that we have with Democrats versus Republicans or um, that didn't have the universities playing the role that they played or Oh, I, I couldn't really imagine a life that didn't have those pillars in it. Um, and being here and seeing that not only can those lives exist, but they can even be better is incredibly reassuring and like kind of fills me with hope that, that we can continue to move in the right direction. Um, but on the other hand, <laughs> it does, uh, it, it's bizarre for me when I go back to the States now in a lot of ways, um, because I've personally noticed things that I never really used to notice that now bother me all the time. So things like as simple as going back to New York and it's like loud and dirty. I never noticed that. I never gave a shit. <laughs> I thought it was like really cool. And now when I go back, I feel like I'm an old man. I just can't ignore it. And it's constantly grading me and giving me stress. And that's kind of a, a silly example, but on a broader scale. Yeah. I, I, I notice a lot of ways that I think, Americans and American society is much further behind other places where it needs to be in key domains. Um, and I'm not totally sure how we'll be able to get there. I mean, I think in Europe, 
the continent has really benefited from everyone being close to each other. You can't really exist with, in the Netherlands, for instance, not knowing about what Italian culture is like, not knowing about what Spanish culture is like, not knowing about what French culture is like. It's almost impossible. I mean, if I drive three hours, I could be in four different countries, whereas America has kind of the benefit and the curse of being able to isolate itself from all these other cultures. So there isn't the same pressure that there is. You know, if one European country is, has instituted national health care, well, it's going to be incredibly difficult then for other countries not to do that because people see that and, and want to adopt it for themselves. Where in the U.S., it's still kind of easy to say, well, that's not over here. Um, so I don't know. I, it's a long answer, but I, it, yeah, it kind of fills me with hope and confusion um, at, at the same time. I'm not, I'm not totally sure. Yeah, I was going to say it's interesting that you made the point about the U.S. being isolated um, because I do think that's a huge problem. And I was also curious like whether or not you felt like our upbringing, not just in living in Paris for, the, for a year, but I think also in having the type of family that we did and having a gay dad, that like there were a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I always felt like when I got to the Netherlands when I was 20 – I felt a sense of like incredible relief because I think maybe unlike you a little bit, um, I I also did not think Trump was going to get elected and went through like a huge crisis when that happened. But I always felt like I was some fucking foreign alien living in a world that didn't make any sense because the, the ways that people, like I would go to a dinner party with like our, our, you know, parents, friends or something. And I was like, I I don't even know what to say to these people. Like, what do you study in school? Gender and sexuality. Like, oh, like, so like how to have sex. I was like, you're an adult. Like, how is this possible? (laughs) What's going on right now? Um, But I wonder if that, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I think the way in which, especially as far as our dad went, you were so much younger when you found out. So I don't think you even had a, like a conscious reality of not having a gay dad before having that reality. Whereas I think when, cause I found out when I was 10, it was like the whole world changed. Um, everything, you know, I had that moment of like everything I thought was real is fake. Like everything that people tell me is normal. Maybe isn't like, what is life? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can, I can relate to a lot of that. I mean, I also experienced that. I think, growing up in the in the family that we did and having the lives that we did that I think we were instilled I mean maybe distrust sounds almost too harsh a word but just not to take things at face value um because we didn't have it at face value we didn't grow up in the ideal suburban household with um the picket fence and staying in the suburbs you know the, the the stuff that we knew, what we associated with mom and dad and neighborhood and culture were, were a little bit different and gave us good reason to doubt that culture knew what the hell it was talking about, especially when it came to something like homosexuality. Um, so then, yeah, moving abroad is kind of an exhilarating experience and a liberating experience to then be around people who have accepted and can live a different life and have different conversations. I mean, it's a cliche, but when I go back, and again, I have to keep saying personally because maybe this is just the social circle that I roll in, um, but work is everything to Americans, at least the people that I hang out with. You can't get 30 seconds into a conversation, certainly not with someone who you just met, without 
starting to talk about work, what you do, where you studied, what you're planning. Like it's constant, and it's not. There's not ill will about it. I don't think that. I mean, sometimes there is. Sometimes people are like trying to compete with you and show that they're better than you. But most of the times, I think there's just that's what people talk about. You, if 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 you meet people, you talk about what they what they're working on at the moment, um, and. I've, I've never dreamed of doing that here. Like, I have really close relationships with people here. I know extremely little about what they do for work. I, I know very little about it. Um, it's a totally different way of, of conducting your, your, your social and cultural lives. Um, that, yeah, it, it, in a sense, it's, it's really exhilarating and refreshing. But, I mean, also to me, so now, you know, I have a Dutch girlfriend. I'm, I'm planning on being here for a while. I've been here now for like four years. Um, and there is a sense though where I feel like I don't really know where I fit. <laughs> like I'm not, when I go back to the States, I don't feel American. I don't really relate to Americans in the same way that I used to. I have totally different life experiences and uh, I'm thinking about different things than, than a, lot of, uh, a lot of people back home are thinking about. But I'm also definitely not Dutch. I, I mean, I, I love Dutch people, but I'm... I'm I mean, technically I you are Dutch, though, is the thing. <laughs> technically, I'm Dutch. Technically, the last name if the last name is proof of anything. <laughs> yeah, I am Dutch. Um, and I'm trying to lead into that as much as possible. But yeah, but yeah I, don't, I don't know. At, at the same time, then I'm sort of in this, like, cultural no-man's land. Um, which, on the one part, is really fun, because I can kind of, like, pick and choose the parts to form my, my identity that I like. I don't have to adopt cultural norms or, or, or social stereotypes that I disagree with. But on the other hand, yeah, then I'm like this weird creature that <laughs> doesn't really belong to a, a particular cultural home, um, which, yeah, it's still something I'm navigating, trying to figure out. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's funny. I was having <laughs> another thought in the bath. I have all my best thoughts while in my daily bath. Uh, but I was thinking about how <laughs> grateful I was that I, I was like, I can't remember the last time someone asked me, what do you do like for a living? Yeah. And I yeah. just, I mean, forever I have despised that question. Um, yeah. I mean, I think initially it was because what I was doing, like when I was in school, nobody understood. So I would just... Yeah. really dread being asked that and now I don't really know what I do so <laughs> I don't really know what to yeah. say <laughs> even our dad is like yeah. so when people ask me what you do like what am I supposed to say um yeah but uh yeah so I do think to some extent it is about the social circle but I think the vast majority of Americans I mean I think I started my podcast simply to like attract the people that weren't like that because I knew it would be really yeah. hard to find them in some sort of, you know, other, like, go, let's go to an, a bar or like, let's use a dating app and like find people that are aligned with me. No, I had to yeah. start a podcast. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> I, I'm curious what your, I think we've talked about this before. Cause I get pulled in both directions of, you know, we were born in this country, especially now I feel not that I've ever felt American necessarily, but I do sort of see ways already in my life in which, like, how might it be possible to construct a life and a, a world even, a little mini world at least, that is within yeah. America, but yet 
totally different. Um, and I have such, I feel so compelled to do that sometimes, even though I want to be like, Oh, fuck it. I'll just go live in Bali or Spain or the Netherlands because those places are way more ahead of the game. But I feel this sort of guilt around like, but can't, can we not also, how much control do we have around constructing our actual reality in our lives outside of these cultural and sort of like governmental institutions, Um, and do I have a responsibility to myself or to those I love or to those I don't even know to sort of show like to a large extent, I think we're living in cages with the door open and yes, it's health, the healthcare system, just as one example, fucking sucks. But what if you were living in a way where you weren't getting sick as often because you had less, you know, you had more community and you had more social support and better food to eat. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I am like so rooting for you and like inspired by the stuff that you're up to. And I think that you absolutely are going to figure out a way how to make it work when you already are. I think in a lot of ways you, in this respect, at least you're, you're, you're braver or stronger than I am. Um, I, because doing this, I mean, I, uh, interesting to hear your take on it, but you have to boldly go your own way. It's not like that comes free. There are big costs with that. There, there, there are social costs with that. And, and it, it, it's, it's a sort of live the life that you want to live at least at first, maybe requires a lot of strength to, to swim against the current um, and, and start finding your own way, grab the first rock and then climb up and then keep going. Um, and I think for me, at least so far, when I, when I've thought about going back to the States, um, uh, and now it's complicated by the fact that I'm in love with a Dutch woman and, and she likes it here. So that, that, that changes things. But at least at first when I was, when I was thinking about going back to the States, I didn't know how I was going to do that. I saw a life where I would get sucked in um, and I wouldn't be able to break out of it. I mean, I think as well, us growing up, we evolved in different social cir- uh, circles with different expectations um, and, and, and slightly different dynamics to the extent that I don't know if I would really be able to escape it or to get away from it or to build up the kind of life that I wanted to, that was inspiring and fulfilling. I mean, because of the structural elements that are in place, because of the healthcare system, because you're bombarded with politics and all that, but also, I mean, even the people closest to me, um, I think I would, uh, eventually I would end up getting pulled into something, um, that, that, I would end up not being really happy about um, and not really knowing how to resist it. And so being abroad, it's a lot easier for me because now I'm getting pulled the other direction. Like, I mean, for me, I think I have a tendency to work more than I should or more than is healthy for me. And if I'm in an American context, that's encouraged. You're rewarded for that. You're praised for that. You get promoted for that. You get social status for that. Um, and here, <laughs> it's the opposite. I get like uh, I, I get ridiculed for that <laughs> constantly, um, which is good because then it sets me at the middle ground. I think, um, but at least so far, I've found it to be 
easier. Maybe I'll just say it's easier for me to be in a place that, that is, is pulling me in the direction that I want to rather than in a place that's pulling me in the direction that I don't want to. Um, but of course also that's like quite easy for me to say and maybe rationalize when, um, I'm living over here and, and, and don't plan to go back. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of the value that can be created by establishing your own community and, and, and living a, a life as a model for others to follow that, that lives by a different code. I mean, I can't, I can't really imagine anything more meaningful than that. Yeah, it, it's a good point what you're making about like because I had to definitely sort of like cut ties with people and ideas and worlds, I think, in order to create this other world, but like on the same continent, right? Like had I yeah. I wonder had I moved somewhere else and sort of got a new social circle that I was like, oh, I don't really have to deal with those other people because they're so far away. Whereas like, what's the excuse when they're all close by of like, no, I'm going to stay sort of here physically, but um, I'm not going to stay in those contexts anymore. I'm not going to continue those relationships. I'm, I'm going to try and find you know, my entire world was like that too. People that were very focused on work and career and uh, getting married and having babies and like, holy shit, did I get sort of sucked into that whirlpool for a while Um, and sort of thank God (laughs) extracted myself from that. But it's hard. It's like quicksand. I mean, you know, like Gabor Mate has that great quote about like authenticity and belonging and that belonging trumps authenticity. And it's like, it's really hard to not just want to do what everyone else is doing because it feels more comfortable and it, it feels safer. I mean, to be isolated and alone is, um, super fucking scary. Uh, yeah. 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 I have so many, I mean, okay, wait, one last thing. <laughs> um, it's, I wanted to get your perspective cause I, I don't think I thought about this before, and I think you very explicitly said it to me once. Um, like, obviously, the only context in terms of, like, siblingry that I've had is being the older sibling. So I didn't ever have the mm. understanding of what it might be like to have an older sibling. Um, mm. And I remember you said something to me very funny, which was, like, you know, like, I started to snowboard, and you're like, well, that's why I started to snowboard. But then, like, wait, why aren't you snowboarding anymore? Like, you don't like this? Or, like, you started to play music. That's why I've played music and write guitar. Like, why aren't you doing this anymore? And I feel like I was, yeah. like, super into, like, concepts around, like, non-monogamy. And yet you were the yeah. one in a non-monogamous relationship for all of college. And I was, like, living a married, monogamous housewife life. Um, yeah. And I, I wondered... You know, now, um, like whether you still feel those types of things or whether like almost there's a guilt, like oh, I should just like move to the Netherlands and like do what Meek is doing so he doesn't feel pressured to uproot his whole life and like learn how to snowboard again. Um, but yeah, I'm curious like what that's been like for you uh, being the younger sibling. And I think I've I've probably... I don't know. I think because, like I said at the beginning, I've done this thing where I didn't necessarily have plans. Um, Mm. And I think within that context made a lot of errors because I was just sort of like 
doing what felt right in the moment and not necessarily thinking many steps ahead. Um, and I feel like that's probably led to both inspiration, but also, um, sort of anger and fear on your part too. Mm. That you have adopted things and then changed course in dramatic ways. Well, that, but I think also in terms of like, you knew me growing up so well and knew what my ideals were and what I cared about. And then I think especially like for all of my 20s when I was in this life and world and relationship that I think anyone that had known me for a long time knew was kind of oppositional to who I was like being really confused or frustrated or or afraid that I was, like I said, getting sucked into some sort of whirlpool that didn't make any logical sense. Yeah, I was confused. (laughs) I'll be honest. I was confused about that, (laughs) about that portion for a while there. Um, But I don't know. I mean, also like, I, I think at the end of the day, I've always kind of relied on your strength. I mean, you've never gotten yourself into a situation where I really doubted that you were going to be okay in the end, ever. I I think, like, you've always managed to figure out a way to get yourself out of situations that don't work and also to get yourself into situations that are really meaningful and everything in between. Um, And so that part of your life definitely was confusing to me. It didn't totally align with a lot of the things that I thought I had understood about you um, or I'd understood about what you valued. But I also believed and relied on you that if this was something that wasn't actually working, you would figure out a way to make it right. Um, And if not, then this was really what was right for you. I mean, I think at the end of the day, like predicting your behavior is harder than predicting the stock market. So I, 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 if I was thinking I knew what was going to happen for you, I I had, that, that would be a fool's errand, but relying that you did that, that if, even if I can't totally understand what you're up to, I mean, I feel like this was maybe true in, in, in your marriage, but also at various other points. Like if I can't totally see what you're up to, or it doesn't totally make sense to me, then it, I'm, I'm confident it makes sense to you. Um, and I'm confident that if it stops making sense to you, then you're going to be able to do something about it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, and I think also, I mean, at least being the younger sibling, Definitely when we were growing up, I looked to you as a model in a lot of ways. I mean, I've I've, uh, conspicuously followed in very clear footsteps from snowboarding to playing music to being in the Netherlands to having a non-monogamous relationship. I mean, (laughs) it's not a coincidence, I don't think, (laughs) that uh, that, that's happened on a relative delay to yours. So yeah, shit, who knows? Maybe now I'm currently settling down into monogamous married life and in five to ten years, I'll uh, I'll end that to go start a commune in the middle of the desert somewhere. That's totally possible. (laughs) Um. But, uh, but yeah, no, I don't know. Also, I, I think, I think my relationship towards you, the way that I've viewed you is, yeah, some, I mean, 
I'm, I'm always like kind of following behind your footsteps to see where you're going to end up um, and trying things on for size that you embody. And a lot of the times they end up totally working um, for me to, to a large extent. Um, but I've never, I, I don't think I've ever found it particularly disturbing that then you would have moved off those ideas um, that if, if you, uh, you were playing music that you're not anymore. If you were married, that you're not anymore. I don't, I don't think that's ever been totally disturbing. It's kind of like come with what I've expected from you. I, I, I don't really expect you ever to stay the same. I expect you to be kind of constantly evolving, which is also kind of cool for me because then I, I get to like <laughs> enter into fields of thought that I would have never come into contact with otherwise. Um, uh, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe it's 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 more disturbing than I think it is. But for the most part, I've I've kind of viewed it as a as as a positive, at least in the ways we're talking about. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I definitely feel like I see a trajectory where we have basically the same values and views on the world, and the changes that we're trying to enact are pretty fucking aligned, but we're coming at them through these sort of different pathways, I guess. Um, And I am very curious to see how maybe at some point those pathways sort of intertwine, because I can see like your sort of theoretical, philosophical, economical, structural um, framework to all of this at some point obviously meets up with the experiential day-to-day life of how we do things. Um, And in what ways, like, is what I'm doing sort of, like, training ground for your ideas or your ideas sort of context for my physical world in some way? Yeah, that's a really interesting observation, yeah. I'm, I'm... I think there's a lot of truth to that. I'm definitely curious to see how that how that develops in the in the in the future. Yeah, I don't know if mom. I'm sure she told you this story because she's very proud of it. But how? I guess she like went to a psychic one time or something, and it was before either one of us were born. And uh, the psychic basically said to her, like, if you ever get pregnant, you can't have an abortion because the kids that you're <laughs> gonna have are gonna change the world. And she always would say that to me. And I was just like, God damn it. Like what? That's pressure. Like, what are you talking about? Of course, (laughs) it it made way less sense to me before. I feel like, but now I'm, I'll try, I'll I'll try. We can try at least. (laughs) Yeah, man, I'm doing my best. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly keep at it. I mean, yeah, it's funny. I, I, I do think for us, yeah, we're, we've never necessarily, and I think it's, it's one of the best is one of my favorite and least favorite things about myself that I'm not ever really satisfied with something that I don't think is profoundly meaningful or profoundly important or uh, influential. Like I've, 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 I don't think either of us have ever envisioned a life for ourselves where we'll get by doing something um, that's, that's pretty good but not necessarily the most amazing thing we could be doing and then be satisfied. <laughs> a lot of the stuff that I learned in happiness research is that that might not be the sure, the surest way to be satisfied with your life. 
Um, but it also has kind of driven and motivated me to do, uh, to do a lot of the things that I've ended up finding meaning in. Um, but yeah, I think, I don't know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we, we share that sort of inclination to try to do the most. Well, I think I would reframe it a little bit in that I think, I mean, when I first, when I got divorced and was what felt like I was like dying in a pool of my own terrible decisions right after that, uh, my ideas were so broad. I mean, I, I was like, I'm going to create this like healing world and it's going to be used. Like we're going to come up with all these different sort of, you know, uh, structures that can be replicated in all these different places. And I mean, thankfully at the time, I think I was in a very sort of like intuitive, instinctual place. And the message I kept getting Mm -hmm. was just fucking deal with your backyard. Like stop trying to quote unquote, change the world. Like you, maybe the way to do that is just to change your personal life. Um, and I continually get that reassurance of like, you know, as long as I think at the moment I wouldn't be and am not satisfied unless I'm doing the most authentic thing for me. Right. Um, so it's like, it's not framed in like doing big things and meaningful things, you know, as far as some sort of like, you know, uh, profit is concerned or even reach is concerned. It's like, what do I find fun? It's like, I, I really like to talk. (laughs) So having a fun, I really like to talk and I have a shit ton of opinions that like not a lot of people have. And what's, you know, I always say like, I'd be doing this podcast probably if no one was listening, it's just like a really good way to get energy out of my body that's always been there and that always I think has gotten sort of frustrated um and you know I want to live in a pretty place with people I care about and love and I I don't want to work that hard uh so I want to live in a way that you know utilizes lots of different people's skills so that I'm not expected to you know, cook and clean and raise kids and have a business. I mean, those things are completely impossible. Um, So yeah, it's interesting though, how, and I think that applies to everyone and why I'm actually really grateful. One of the reasons I'm grateful for this whole pandemic, because I think people are sort of being forced to be like, who am I and what do I like? You know, if these external things are sort of stripped away from me, what the fuck am I doing here? And I think if we can get closer to that, then that's like how we change the world. Hey, amen. Well said. <laughs> I would totally agree with that rephrasing of it. That, yeah. was, that was well done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to like mic drop totally. myself. <clears throat> um, that was good. I, that was, that was, I, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I don't have anything to respond. That was perfect. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. Well, um, I'm sure we could keep talking. We should do this again. I really wanted to do this in person, but the world. We've had trips planned to see each other like three or four times now that have gotten. We were supposed to be doing band trips together in like a month. I know. That's terrible. Well, it'll happen. Yeah, it'll it'll definitely happen. Um, Okay, so 
I know I don't think you have a website or anything. People, I think, on this podcast know you most for your music, which I've like promoted ad nauseum because <laughs> oh, yeah, I like your intros by the way. They're thanks. Quite good. <laughs> <Yeah>. Intro <laughs> thanks to me. Um but where can people learn more about the stuff that you're doing with the Happiness Institute? And then um I ask everyone to recommend uh one book or you can say two or three if you want. Uh that was really meaningful to you in your life. Yeah. Um so probably the website, happinessresearchinstitute.com, um, is probably the best place. The report that we've been talking about um, is called Wellbeing Adjusted Life Years, uh, and that's, uh, that'll be easy to find from there. Um, I think, yeah, in terms of a, two books, um, well, you said one book. I'm going to say two yeah. books. <laughs> um, Got it. Uh, which is fine, because I'm going to say two fiction books. Um, and I almost never read fiction. Um, I find, yeah, for, for whatever reason, unless it's incredibly powerful, I have a difficult time engaging with it. But the, but also the most meaningful books in my life have probably been fiction books. Um, so the first one would be An Unbearable Lightness of Being um, by Milan Kundera. I never quite know how to say his name. Um, but it's really just a masterful tour of, love and romance and philosophy and culture and he does i mean he kind of he that book introduced me to the power of fiction in 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 a real way where there's various points throughout the book where he'll he'll come out of it completely and just tell you straight up i'm inventing these characters as i go they're not actually real these aren't real people and then go right back into the story and you're just as emotionally affected by it even if you don't know that even if you know that it's not real um which is all kinds of mysterious and cool um and then also uh the second one would be A Hundred Years of Solitude um, by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, which I guess is particularly relevant now. Um, but that, yeah, I mean, I, I've i read it. I, I, I'm about to start reading it again. I don't even know how to explain that book. It's such a masterpiece. Uh, it's such unbelievably beautiful writing. Um, and I mean, on every page, almost in every paragraph, there's like a new mind-blowing concept or beautiful turn of phrase that frames an issue in a way that you never thought about before um, that I really just can't recommend it enough. Um, so yeah, I think those would, be, those would be the two. And that's quite relevant for coronavirus, I guess, now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sweet. So, recommendation. Thank you. I did finally, like yeah. you recommended The Unbearable Lightness being to me for so long, and I finally read it. Like a year or so. Oh, nice! And also, have you ever seen oh, the film? I don't know if we talked about it. Yeah, I don't think we have. I have not seen the film. Oh, you Did should. Did you like the book? And what's the film like? I yes, I loved the book. I have a lot to say about it. So much. I mean, especially I feel yeah. like as a woman relating to both of those main characters, I feel so. Um, I just feel like both of them are very familiar, and and maybe that's just because of you know how. Milan like is definitely writing about certain parts of them um and maybe not others so maybe there's more complexity to the characters that if I saw all of it I'd be like oh yeah she's more like me but I just really resonate with with the female characters quite a bit um but the film was really good it's like Daniel Day Lewis as a young man um 
It's God, I didn't know it's Daniel Day. <laughs> yeah. Who doesn't love him? Yeah. Amazing. It's it's great. It really provides a lot of like visual aspects to the book that I think sort of help bring it to life in a way that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um especially the scenes with both of those women together uh just sort of seeing them interact and just sort of like the subtleties of the way that these characters sort of look at each other and it's a lot i I think we've like i almost think we haven't even finished it we keep like pausing it after 30 minutes and having like a six hour long conversation um it's (laughs) it's so dense there's like so much uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That doesn't usually happen. I, if, if you hadn't given me that recommendation, I probably wouldn't have watched it because the book is so precious to me that I would have thought the movie would would ruin it. But it's rare that then a movie ends up complimenting uh, the book. That's yeah. awesome. I'll totally watch it. Yeah, I think it did. I mean, and there's no way to really like literally make a movie based on that book. So I think it, it's sort of safe in the sense that what's so cool about that book is like the way that it's written and the movie just sort of lends yeah. a physical visual energetic component to it that i think just makes it come alive even more so that's so cool oh yeah yeah, i'll watch it tonight sweet all right well love you thanks for doing this this was super fun i love you too thank you for uh having me on it's kind of an honor over here (laughs) yeah same (laughs) but it's good you're doing interesting things or you know it'd be kind of weird yeah, I wouldn't be invited. Yeah. Even though, like, you are the younger <laughs> sibling, I was always like, fuck it. Like, Mika's so much smarter than me. I gotta, like, figure out. I just gotta, like, be unique enough to where nobody knows I'm not as, like, academically smart as my younger brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, many versions of smart. I don't know if I class yeah. myself smarter than you. Yeah. Well, it was, it was super fun. Let's do it again. Yes, let's. Hello again, everybody. Thanks for sticking around and listening to that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Mika actually had a really good idea, which is that he thought it would be interesting to do a podcast on my podcast where he interviewed me, um, which I thought would be kind of fascinating and bizarre. So I think we might do that uh, when he has some more free time in July. So stay tuned for that. Um, again, if you would like to support the podcast, please head over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. For a few dollars a month, you can help me keep this podcast running. Um, this is my only source of income right now, so really appreciate anything you can donate. And in exchange for your donation, um, I offer several perks depending on what level you join at. So anything from playlists to just being um, able to access the patron-only feed. I have an exclusive WhatsApp group chat. Um, lots of different things on there, t-shirts, etc. Uh, if you don't have any money to spare, totally understand. Please share this episode or another one or several of them with your friends and head over to the iTunes store and click subscribe and leave some stars and a review helps a whole lot. So I appreciate it. Um, and yeah, sometime the next time I, uh, I record a podcast, I will be somewhere off on the road, hopefully, unless things descend into total chaos in which I might make my way back here to this safe little town. Um, But yeah, hopefully not. Hopefully uh, the world will stay on its feet long enough for uh, me to travel around. If you are anywhere in, let's say, Washington, Oregon, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, 
I think I'm probably forgetting something somewhere in there. And you'd like to have a socially distant fire with me outside where we're safe or have some recommendations of any cool camping spots or anything like that. Let me know. I promise to be discreet and uh, stay distant from others. Definitely not making our way into any cities this time around, uh, not doing any meetups. But um, if you have some land or a house in the open country where a van could be parked and uh, have a campfire with us, let me know. You can uh, hit me up on Instagram, anya.cots, or email anyacots at gmail.com, or send me a message on Patreon, or send me a letter in an owl's mouth. I don't really care how you reach out. Uh, love to hear from you guys. It's been amazing meeting some of you um, thus far and hope to meet more of you soon uh, in a safe, socially distant manner. <laughs> All right, um, I'm going to play you out today with a song by the one and only Mika Cates. If you uh, like the song and you want to hear more of his music, you can find it on Spotify, but just spell his name phonetically. So it's M-E-E-K-A-K-A-T-E-S. He has a lot of cool shit on there. This song is called Closure. Hope you enjoy it. And can't wait to bring you some of these episodes that I have recorded. Um, super excited about them. All right. Take care. Stay safe. And at least relatively sane. Bye. Someday we are